Thank you so much for opening your hearts and your lives. And we encourage you to just take a deep breath, relax for a few moments, and listen, listen for God's word and God's voice. And sometimes it's a very, very gentle nudge. Sometimes it's one sentence, one, one story, just one little part of today's experience that you can take with you and reflect on and see how God may directing or, or redirecting your life. We continue our summer series on Colossians, Rediscovering Jesus, and this is our third sermon in the series, and you'll find the scripture passage on the back, I think, of your worship guide, Colossians chapter 1, and we're moving towards the end of that chapter. I, I begin with a confession that I love to watch Seinfeld reruns. I probably love them too much and watch them too often and can quote too many of them. But one of my favorite episodes is from season nine, and it's my favorite, one of my favorites, for one reason, the whole episode is just backwards. It, it, it opens with the end and then moves towards the beginning. It opens with, if you're a fan, it opens with the entire gang in India at a wedding. And they're angry at each other, and there are snide remarks, and, and there are one-liners, and you have no idea what's going on because there's no context. And then it just backs up the next scene, and it backs up and backs up until the end of the show is actually the beginning of the storyline. I say all of that for this. There was something about today's passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 29, and it was the very last verse that grabbed my attention. And here it is. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. That's what, this is the Apostle Paul. And that's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. It's about Paul's drive and motivation. It's the reason that he gets out of bed every day. It's the reason for the attitude that he has that he could write a letter like this and a few others even while he is in prison. It's about his identity and his purpose in life. It reveals his dependence upon Jesus even while he is in prison. And it gives us the clues as to his ability and desire to pull together various cultures in the ancient world under one. And that is under Jesus. And it makes me ask questions like, well, what about me? What's my drive and motivation? What about me? What's my reason for getting out of bed every day? Is it worth it? What about you? What is it that makes you get up every morning and sends you out the door? What is it that you're working for? What is it that you're planning on? What, is it that, what are your goals? And Is it worth it? And where is God in the middle of all of that? That's why I work and struggle so hard. The word that he uses for struggle, we find a lot of places in ancient Greek literature, and most of the time, it's about athletes. We're coming up on the Olympics. Yeah, it's about athletes. It's about how they are struggling. It's about how they're working hard. It's about how they're giving everything that they have because they've got some goal. They're trying to finish. They're trying to win. They're pushing themselves and pushing their bodies. That's the word the Apostle Paul uses. 
The Greek phrase is something like this, struggling according to his energy which energizes me in power. Struggling according to his energy which energizes me in power. His claim is that anything he's accomplished is because God has energized him. Which makes me ask again, what's getting me out of bed every day? What's energizing me and focusing me and driving me? Have we discovered Christ's mighty power, or am I still doing it on my own? Am I living for something bigger than I am and larger than I am and, and bigger than I could ever hope to accomplish on my own? Tim Keller wrote, As many have learned and later taught, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Maybe that's Paul's secret. Maybe he's reached the place where Jesus is all he has. And now something has changed. Clicked. It's now his... his so let's back up one verse. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. This is why. So let's back up one verse. Let's bring verse 28 into it now. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. And then the verse we just looked at, that's why I work and struggle so hard. Theologians call it an eschatological perspective. I know it sounds like a t-shirt you would like to own. An eschatological perspective, which just means Paul isn't living just in the moment. He's looking to the end. Paul isn't looking just how the world is today. He's looking at what God has promised the world will one day become. He isn't looking just at himself in the mirror in prison, if he had a mirror in prison. He isn't looking at just at his circumstances right now. He's looking at what God has promised it will be one day. So, we tell others about Christ. We warn them. We teach them. We want one day to present them to God. And that's why I struggle. I think we're getting closer now. I think we're getting closer to something that's bigger than any of us. Many of you know the name Will Williman. Uh, for a short time, he was the bishop of the Methodist Church in Alabama. Before he was the bishop in Alabama, he was the dean of chapel at Duke University. This goes back to a story in 1984, and he was preaching at Duke in the chapel, and they were in the middle of a drought, not a lot of rain that none of us are complaining about. And during the service, Dr. Williman prayed for rain. Lord, send us rain. Lord, we need rain. We usually say something like, we promise we'll be good the rest of the year. Lord, just send us rain. He said at the end of the service, a very distinguished faculty member at Duke University came down and found him and said, praying for rain. What is this? Duke Chapel is a sophisticated, thoughtful university church praying for rain and walked away. The next Sunday, he was preaching on, from the gospel reading where Jesus fed a multitude of people. Many of you know the story, fish and loaves. And, and he preached about 20 minutes. And he said a sophomore came down after the service 
and said to him, how can you preach for 20 minutes on world hunger and not mention our duty to get organized and stop world hunger? And he thought, who is this kid telling me what to do? So he looked at him and he said, hey, kid, if you know how to stop world hunger, what are you doing wasting your time here in church? You need to get out there and get on with it. But it did start him thinking. And so he did a survey with the folks who were coming. What is it that you expect from the sermons at Duke Chapel? One of the predominant responses went something like this. I want a sermon that reminds me of my responsibilities and motivates me to do my responsibilities to reach out to those in need. So Will Williman responded in a sermon. He said to them, you asked for it, so here it is. Take out one of those little golf pencils in the pew and write this down. And this was his response. Okay, church, this week I want you to work on your sexism, racism, classism, ageism, ethnocentrism. Stop using styrofoam. Get vegan, gluten-free, eat locally, think globally. If you want peace, work for justice. Fight against gentrification. Don't drink so much. It's a college campus. Don't give so little. Practice civility, mindfulness, inclusiveness. Keep Sabbath. Breathe deeply. Live simply. Practice diversity. Perform random, random acts of kindness. Pay it forward. It's a university campus, so he added one more time. You drink too much. Do a good deed daily. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's up to you to do right or right won't be done. You're the hope for tomorrow. You can do anything you set your mind to. And then he added one more time you drink too much. And then he asked, did you notice there's one thing missing? And all of that list, where's God? Where's God? What's your reason for getting out of bed? What's the basis of your identity, your purpose for being? Why do you work and struggle so hard? For what are you working and struggling so hard? And, and is it worth it? So let's back up one more time. Now let's go to verses 24 through 27 and piece a little more of the story together. And he writes from prison, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries, for generations past, and but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body. One translation puts it this way. Right now I am having a celebration, a celebration of my sufferings which are for your benefit. 
Now, that got my attention almost as much as the last verse. Um, What's he saying? I I think there are two ways of reading this, two ways of understanding it, and I don't think it's an either-or. I think we stack them on top of each other. And I think the first one goes like this. Paul is in prison, and he realizes this. If the enemy, if those who are opposing what the gospel is doing, if there are those who are there who are opposing this message of Jesus as the Messiah, it's real, it's real opposition, uh, it's, it's now placed him in prison. And if they are focusing on him, they are not focusing on them. To put it another way, if he can take one for the team, it frees the team up to do other things that they should be doing. And that's one of the reasons that he's writing to them, don't worry about me, God's got this. Don't worry about me, I'm happy to be doing this because of what it gives you the opportunity to do, what it gives God the opportunity to do through you. It's one way. I think the other one that we have to stack on top of this is... Paul is Jewish, and and there's this ancient Jewish belief that before Israel and the people of God, before Israel, God has promised there's an age to come, that the way life is now isn't the way it's always going to be, that God has a dream, and God has made a commitment to creation, and one day it's going to change. To put it another way, God is going to right the wrongs of the world. But before that happens, there will be a dark time. And Paul knows at the end of this darkness, at the end of this struggle, at the end of this suffering is something that's very different. At the end of this is what God has promised all along, that eschatological hope that what we're experiencing now isn't all we're going to experience. What life may be like today isn't all of what life is going to be. Which makes me ask again, what's your reason for getting out of bed? What's the basis of your identity and purpose in life? What are you struggling for? How are you struggling? Are you struggling all alone and is it worth it? Well, Let's continue to piece this story together. Let's back up one more verse and pull in verse 23. And now he writes to them saying, but, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I'm going to read it one more time, and I ask this one question. Think about these two words as I read it. Is this a warning or is this encouragement? He, he plays the apostle card. He, he feels the need in the middle of this passage to say, wait a minute, now this whole gospel thing, I've been appointed. Uh, God called me and appointed me to do this. Uh, this is important. So warning or encouragement? But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Don't deviate. Don't give up. Don't add to the gospel experience 
Trust the good news that you have received. Trust the experience that you have received in Christ. Lean more heavily into it. One person described it this way. When somebody hears the message and believes it, what is happening is that the new creation, which has already come into existence and already claims the entire cosmos, is becoming real and actual in another specific instance. That what God has promised is going to encompass all of creation when one person, when you, when, when your spouse, when your friend, when your parents, when your children make this decision, wait a minute, I've heard this good news. God is doing something in the world. God is doing something in creation. And when that person responds in a very specific way, the new creation grows. And expands and becomes real. Well, let's back up one more time, if you will. Verses 21 and 22. It comes after the hymn that we looked at last week, an ancient hymn that the Apostle Paul quotes about the reality of who Jesus is and what God is doing in Christ in the world. It's, it's, it's a bit overwhelming. It, it's heavy. And he writes this, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This includes you who were once far away from God, enemies, separated, and now he has reconciled you. They are going to ask before this is over, wait a minute, this hymn that you were singing once again, this reality, this, this truth, this, this confession about who Jesus is, what's, what's in it for me? What's in it for us? A few weeks ago, we were, we were it was actually quite a blessing. We were, we were with our high school graduates and we were on the high school graduate trip. I'm, I'm looking for Nick. Where's, where's Nick? Where's 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 I don't, I don't know where he is. Okay, anyway. Um, but we went to, what's, what, what was the big shopping area? Disney Springs? Is that what it's called? Disney Springs. That was Disney Springs. So there was one day, where, which is way too many stores and way too much walking. And at one point, Melissa and I were separated from everyone, and we really didn't know where we were, and we were trying to find. And there's one of the, you, you've seen those big marquees? You've seen those that, that have a map of where you are, and you walk up to it, and it goes, you are here. And then you begin the argument about where you're supposed to go. And we had very different views about that. Yeah, but you're here. Um, that's what this verse is doing. They have sung this incredible hymn. You can back up to verses 15 through 20. And then the, Paul the Apostle puts that circle on there and goes, you, you are here. This locates you in life. This locates you in the reality of creation. 
This locates you not only in what you happen to be experiencing for today, but what God is doing in all of creation. And notice the language that here, that's here. God has reconciled you. And it's the opposite of that list that I read earlier that is, if you're going to create, you need to do this and 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 this. But he starts off by saying, this is what God has done. God has reconciled you. Not because you deserved it, because that's who God is. Not because you were ready for it or thought you needed it, because that's who God is. Because part of this incredible biblical story is that God wants to be in relationship with creation, and that includes you. And God cares about you. And he's going to end up saying, this is my motivation. This is why I get out of bed. I find the energy to do this only in Christ. I'm happy to be suffering because it means God has a chance to be working in you. This is all worth all the pain and all the turmoil. But the beginning of the scene, the beginning of the episode, the beginning of all of this is the realization you are here. Their understanding of God dictates the kind of life they are living. Their understanding of who God is influences how they live and how they work and how they use whatever resources they may have, how they relate to the people that they love and how they relate to the people that they consider to be enemy. And your understanding of who God is shapes you and molds you and says you are here in life. And this is what your life can be like if you will let it. If you will allow God to work. If you will be open. Her name is Catherine Beim Esha. Uh, she wasn't looking for God. She thought she had an understanding of what life should be like. And an interesting understanding of God. Uh, she grew up fourth generation in a tradition that's somehow related. It's a bit related to Christianity, but they saw Jesus as kind of a, 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 a way shower. Uh, this is the way you should live, and, and Jesus is a teacher you should follow, but certainly not the idea of, of being a disciple, of Jesus being the Messiah, of, of Jesus being God in flesh. And then 9-11 happened, and it shook her to her core. She grew up in this tradition where she would read the Bible every day and she would pray the Lord's Prayer and uh, she would even attend church, but there was a distance from an understanding of what evil actually is. Uh, they never went to doctors and, and she was a bit shocked by some of the things she heard in that community, even as they described, well, maybe the people that died in 9-11, maybe they deserved it. She went to college, and while she was there at college, she randomly signed up to be a part of a Bible study group. And, and she, was, she was shocked, and these are her words, she was offended that people were worshiping Jesus 
and praying to Jesus. But she stayed, and she started reading the Bible and asking questions. She's sitting one day with a group of friends. She said, we're sitting at a coffee house and just enjoying conversation and enjoying wonderful coffee, and all of her friends are atheists, and she's sitting there, and she realized something's missing. I don't quite know what it is, but something isn't right. Something isn't adding up. There's something in the arguments and in the logic that isn't fitting her experience and the questions that she now has. Part of her rebelling against the way she grew up, she went to a doctor and found out the headaches that she had been suffering with all of her life could actually be cured, and that just added to the questions that she had. And one day, sitting there um, in a coffee house, she's, she overhears, not a, part, a group she's a part of, but overhears another group doing a Bible study overhears some of the conversations that they're having about faith. And she just said something in my heart stirred. And, and one of them, they were discussing a book by Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there and, and talking about the reality of, of who God is. And so the next Sunday, she visited Grace and Peace Fellowship in St. Louis, Missouri. And she said, I came face to face with the living God. That's always hard to explain to someone, isn't it? It's, it's hard to explain to someone that moment where the questions aren't always answered. But there's an encounter with our Creator, and you just know there's something about this that's now changing. I have a journey, but something has changed. She met with the pastor and the pastor told her she was a sinner, and she said, thank you, because no one had ever told her that before, and it felt good to confess her brokenness and her pain. And there she found Jesus. When I accepted this Jesus as Lord and Savior, God turned my world upside down. Right away, I jumped into the life of the church. In some ways, this was disorienting, like being plopped in front of an all-you-can-eat buffet. But praise God for untangling my heart and mind and for rescuing me into new life with Christ and his church. So let's go back to the end. Why do you get out of bed every morning? For what are you working and striving and struggling? How are you working and striving and struggling? And is it worth it? We offer to you today a better way. A God way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that someone along the way said stop. Someone along the way said, listen. Someone warned us and someone encouraged us and someone taught us that we are not alone, that you care about us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what we hide. You know what we cover up. You know 
our fears, and you know our dreams. Will you give us the courage to just hand it over to you? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. That's all we have, and that's enough. In just a moment, we're going to continue our celebration and our worship by singing. If we can pray with you, if we can explain to you a little more about what it means to follow Jesus, if we can welcome you into a community of faith, of people who are on a journey, we give you that chance to respond. Will you please stand?